episode of Unye <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Unnaze Girls. Uh he, it, it, I'm sorry, I'll start over. <laughs> <laughs> no, we gotta keep this now. You you made this bed. You're gonna lie in it. Okay, I will lie in this bed of hay. Um welcome back to Unwise Girls where we discuss Rick Ryan's various funny little books including right now the sea of monsters i'm i'm your host jacqueline what does chiron think of my little pony hello i'm jane Jane. (laughs) (laughs) i think that he would like it like he would have like a like a aesthetic keychain yeah that tracks we learned some interesting chiron lore in this episode we certainly do today we read three chapters because uh pacing is hard so jane do you Hello. want to tell us a little bit about uh, our chapters for this week? I shall jump into the chapter summaries for this week. Chapter 9. I have the worst family reunion ever. Percy, Annabeth, and Tyson decide that they need to bail on the Princess Andromeda, but not before confronting Luke and finding out what his plan is. On their way to do that, they overhear two of Luke's henchmen discussing the Ethiopian dragon they have below decks, and Annabeth recognizes one of their voices as Chris Rodriguez, an unclaimed member of Hermes' cabin who has defected to Luke's side. As they approach the Admiralty suite where Luke is, Tyson reveals another of his abilities. He can hear much further than humans and can also reproduce the voices he hears, allowing the group to listen in on faraway conversations. Unfortunately, while he's explaining this, Luke and one of his cronies capture them and tie them up in the suite. While the room is nice and well-stocked with food, The trio were disturbed by the aura of pure evil emanating from a golden sarcophagus in the middle of the space. Luke introduces two of his new henchmen, Agrius and Aureus, half-bear men who are created as a result of the gods screwing around with mortals. Luke has a back and forth with the trio where we learn three key facts about him. That it was indeed Luke who poisoned Talia's tree, that he knows why Annabeth is cagey around Cyclopes and that Talia has something to do with it, and that Luke knows about the prophecy Chiron received about Percy, and doesn't think it bodes well for the younger demigod. During this exchange, Percy tells Luke that they were sent by Hermes, which sends Luke into a rage. He tells Percy that with every half-blood who defects away from the Olympians, the creature in the sarcophagus grows stronger, and that one of these half-bloods has supplied Luke with the coordinates to the Golden Fleece. At this point, Percy realizes that the sarcophagus contains a portion of Kronos' corpse, and Luke once again offers to let Percy and Annabeth join him, an offer which they both refuse. Luke orders Aureus to feed them to the Draken, before seeming to become distracted by the sarcophagus. However, as Aureus is marching the trio across the ship's deck, they manage to break free, leaping aboard a lifeboat and cutting the ropes free. As they fall into the water, Percy unscrews the flask containing the four winds and sends the boat speeding away. Chapter 10. We hitch a ride with dead confederates. Annabeth and Percy send an Iris message to Chiron, explaining everything that's happened. Chiron's end of the call is incredibly chaotic, as it seems his extended family are having a huge party. He's unable to offer much advice before the call disconnects. Eventually, Annabeth spots land, a bunch of high-rises and what she identifies as Virginia Beach. 
Percy, because of sea god magic, understands that this means they've travelled 530 nautical miles overnight. After narrowly avoiding the Coast Guard, the trio come ashore in Chesapeake Bay and set up shop in a shelter that Luke, Tali, and Annabeth set up during their initial journey. Percy sends Tyson to go and look for anywhere they could find food, while he and Annabeth discuss what they've learned so far, and whether Talia would agree with what Luke is doing. Annabeth tells Percy that he's very similar to Talia, and that if he doesn't support Luke, she doesn't think Talia would have either. Tyson then returns with a big box of donuts, proudly declaring that he found a nearby donut store. Annabeth and Percy scout out the store, which is called Monster Donuts, and Annabeth worries that it's some sort of evil store for monsters. While Tyson could shop there normally, as he's a cyclops, Plenty of chains like Monster Donuts are actually nests for monsters, and are hostile to Half-Bloods. Case in point, a Hydra sneaks up on the gang and attacks them, all while wearing a bib that says, I'm a Monster Donut Kid. The ensuing fight is interrupted by gunfire from a Civil War-era ironclad on the river, blasting the Hydra. As it turns out, the ship is crewed by a bunch of zombie confederates and is being commanded by Clarice. Chapter 11. Clarice Blows Up Everything Tyson, Percy, and Annabeth board the Confederate ship, and after a tour, sit down for dinner with Clarice. Clarice informs the trio that they've been kicked out of Camp Half-Blood, and explains that she has command of the ship because soldiers who lose wars owe a debt to Ares, which he has allowed her to collect on. Annabeth proposes that Clarice team up with the rest of the kids, but Clarice refuses, determined to take the glory for herself, and lets slip that this is in spite of an ominous prophecy from the Oracle. At this point, Percy realises that Clarice is alone on the ship, even though Tantalus said she could take two friends. Clarice replies that she left them to defend the camp, but Percy suspects that they didn't want to go with her for some reason. Clarice assigns the gang's hammocks below decks and tells them that they're guests, but that there will be consequences if they try to escape. That night, Percy has another dream about Grover, in which Polyphemus catches him undoing his wedding train. He drags Grover outside of the cave for what seems to be the first time in weeks, and we see that the island he lives on is nothing short of a paradise, due to the golden fleece in the centre. He then presents Grover with some wool from one of the sheep on the island, and proudly informs him that it can't be unravelled, and that the wedding train should be completed soon. Percy wakes up, haunted by the look of dread and panic on Grover's face. The next morning, the ship arrives at the entrance to the Sea of Monsters. While wandering around below decks, Percy accidentally overhears an iris message between Clarice and Ares. Ares is intimidating Clarice and demanding that she not let Percy steal her thunder, no matter what the Oracle tells her. We also see that Clarice instinctively flinches when an angered Ares raises his hand to her, and Percy creeps away from the scene without being spotted. Back above decks, Clarice explains that the only way into the Sea of Monsters is through Charybidus and his sister Scylla. (laughs) Clarice plans to avoid Scylla, a reptile that lives on top of a huge stone pillar and plucks sailors off the decks of their ships, and instead directly attack Charybidus, a huge entity that sucks in, chews up, and spits out whatever is in the ocean around her. However, this doesn't go to plan. The ironclad's guns have little effect on the monster, and the ship is in danger of being sucked in when the engines are wrecked by a fire, before Tyson goes below decks and manages to fix it. At this point, Charybidus vomits up thousands of gallons of ocean water, pushing the ship close enough to Scylla's pillar for her to start attacking them. Several Confederates and Percy are grabbed off the deck of the ship. However, Percy barely manages to slice the tendril that grabbed him with his sword, and begins to fall back towards the ship. Unfortunately, at this point, the fire in the engine room gets out of hand, and the ship explodes. While Annabeth, Clarice, and a few of the others have made it to the lifeboats, Tyson was still in the engine room when the explosion happened. 
Before Percy hits the water, he hears the sound of wind howling as Annabeth opens the flask again, blowing both him and the lifeboats well away from the wreckage. He hits the sea, once again lamenting the fact that he's unable to drown. So, what did you think of these chapters? I like these chapters. I think they're pretty good. I still think that, like, this first chapter that we read, the Worst Family Reunion one, uh, chapter 8, or chapter 9, could have been just combined with chapter 8. Yeah, it doesn't really need a whole chapter of setup. It's a pretty straightforward conflict, but also a really good one. Mm-hmm. Like, we get we get really good descriptions of, like, that help visualize the story, which I, I rarely ever can, like, visualize what's going on in a book. Yeah, same. Um, but I noticed that, like, reading, like, the, the, um, the scene with Luke and, like, the, in the big room and stuff, the big room, the, like, uh, state's room or whatever, mm-hmm. was very, like, I could just, I just could, like, see it playing out in the film of my mind. It was very nice. Uh, Luke is evil and hot now. <laughs> White boy summer. Yeah, he does kind of have a Ben Shapiro vibe going on, I think. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I don't... I just said he... I just said that Ben Shapiro... I, I just said that Luke is evil and hot. That's... And you said, yeah, he's like Ben Shapiro. Hang on a second. I was not talking about the description you gave. I was talking about the description the book gave. Which is, hang on, let me let me track this down. Okay. It looked like he was showing off what fashionable college-aged villains were wearing to Harvard this year. Yeah, he does sound like a mini Vash. Yeah, he he does sound like uh, he's destroying college students in debates. He's also a he's Luke has evolved into being our Tumblr sexy man. Oh fuck! <laughs> uh, it's unfortunate, but true. It is. It and, is both of those things. Uh, yeah, I. How do you like him in these? This chapter. Uh, I think it's. It's, you know, it's a pretty good depiction of him as a villain. We get him monologuing and being really cool and in control. And then him, his face turning the color of pepperoni when his dad is mentioned. Yeah, that was really good. That's such a, like, concise way of communicating that, like, for all of his, like, accomplishments as a villain, he is just an angry child. He mentions having, like, spies in camp. Mm-hmm. Who do you think the spies are? Uh, probably those those twins that we heard about earlier. My, like... Wait, the twins? The, like the, the Stoll uh... twins. Oh, you think it's the Stoll brothers? Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm gonna make a really obvious bet and just say that it's... I'm gonna say that it's probably Tantalus. Oh, uh, yeah, probably is Tantalus, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I just think it... I think there's a distinct possibility that the really evil guy they introduced is a little bit evil. Listen, he said campers. Tantalus is not a camper. Oh, he said campers? Oh, well, I guess. I don't think it's the Stoll Brothers. I think it'd be weird for, like, the new... I, I could see it being Aerie, maybe some Aries captain people, or, like... Hmm. I guess that would explain why they didn't want to go with Clarice, if they were, like, rooting on her to fail. Can we talk about that, too? What, the Clarice stuff? Yeah. Sure. Which meant specifically, because we get a lot of Clarice in these chapters. Yeah, I and I am pro-Clarice Absolutely. here, largely. Uh, we go forward, let's go forward a little bit. We're at the, uh, they get picked up by a Confederate warship. Yep. And, 
which is, you know, uh, I was, I was initially very cagey about this, but I think uh-huh. I'm actually okay with it because the way it's Go on. the way it's framed is the Confederates are a bunch of losers who sucked at war so bad that they now have to get bossed around by this small child. Very true. So I think I can accept it. I have so much stuff to say about Clarice in these chapters. Mm-hmm. Because she was really cool. Absolutely. She is like a badass decked out in armor. She got her like feet up on the table, like drinking a Coke or whatever. Just like commanding war- commanding her ships through the like Scylla and Charybdis. It's very good. I was very happy when all of our predictions about maybe Clarice will become more of an ally character were paid off by her sailing in and blowing up a Hydra with a warship. That was so cool. Yeah. She's obviously not like their friend yet even, but Absolutely not. The first concession that we get is that like she doesn't like make them prisoners. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh you're our guests. And she's on a ship full of zombie racists. I think on some level she has to be glad to see them. Very true. Uh, th- these chapters do a lot for, for Clarice. Um, mm-hmm. There's a, there's an exchange that I want to talk about really fast. Uh-huh. Uh, it's between Percy and Clarice. You do Percy, I'll do Clarice. Where are your cabin mates? You were allowed to take two friends with you, weren't you? They didn't. I, I let them stay behind to protect the camp. You mean even the people in your own cabin wouldn't help you? This is really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Because, like... I could see the answer being as literal as, yeah, they stayed behind to protect the camp. But she has that little pause of, like, they didn't. And I want to know everything about that. Like, Yeah, there's some shit going on there. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. The idea that, like, has Ares Kaplan just, like, gotten sick of Clarice? And, like, why? Because, like, up to now, I like, Ares Kaplan has just kind of been... A solid wall of mean assholes who all hate Percy. Yeah, represented by Clarice, a mean asshole who hate Percy. And this is the first time we've seen any kind of cracks in that. So it's nice development for them. It is, but I'm just like, is like, was she the only one who really cared about Border Patrol? And like, everyone else was being like annoyed at her insisting on them doing it? Or like. I, I think it's more to do with like. Whatever this ominous prophecy the Oracle gave her is, it was bad enough that when she told it to anybody she was going to bring along, they said, nope, fuck that. I I think that's possible. Uh, I didn't even consider that, really. I was thinking, like, maybe... I think it's either, like... what, what the, the theories that I had... Either Ares Cabin isn't really a bunch of bullies, but Clarice was, like, pushing them into being bullies, and that's why they don't like her. Mm-hmm. Or it's the opposite. Everyone in Aria's cabin sucks, and they all suck more than Clarice, and she's like easy to pick on because she like will like, is like big and will give a reaction. I think it might be that because also like at this point in the story, they don't really have any reason to hate her. She did just win like the chariot race for them. Yeah, yeah. I I think your theory about like the um I think your theory about the prophecy makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious to see how it unfolds. Same. Here here's. Okay, so I went on the wiki. This is a little bit of an unrelated thing. Oh, okay. I, I was doing some fact-checking, and I went on Clarice's wiki page. Mm-hmm. And I carefully avoided, like, spoilers, and I looked through, and I saw on her info box 
that she's apparently six foot six. Goddamn. So I, first of all, congratulations, Clarice. Uh, you did it. Y- you are so powerful. Second of all, I guess I guess we have to make a retraction about that that time that Percy was being like weirdly fat phobic or whatever towards her. Or like the book was. Hey, I ejected at the time. I said that I was pretty sure it was a different camper and not Clarice. No, that wasn't true. That's objectively untrue. Is it? Yeah. Wait. No, I yeah. S- no, I swear he was talking about someone else. No, it was Clarice. He was talking about how how she had like pig eyes and like an oh, XXXL no, yeah, that... shirt. No, I remember what I, I said that it was because I thought she was muscular. Oh, Okay. You got confused. And I have to assume she is muscular, but mm-hmm. like, I guess it makes sense that she would have like an XXXL shirt if she was six foot six. Yeah, that tracks. My God. I am uh, peek behind the curtain. I am six foot four and I do have to buy very large clothes. Jane, Hello. I am going to climb you. <laughs> you are a mountain and I, I need, I, I need to reach the top. It's true. <laughs> Uh, simply stand atop my head. I simply will. I want to keep going on Clarice for a minute. Uh, because then so, she does have another very important scene that I have many thoughts her, on. Her talking to her dad, Aries. Mm-hmm. And I I completely forgot that it is, it is like, he is, and this makes so much sense, because he is the god of like the looming threat of violence, so him being like an explicitly like violently abusive father makes so much sense. Yeah, that that definitely tracks, and it, even outside of that, it tracks with the characterization of him we've seen. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, you said you had some thoughts. I do. I think it's a really interesting development because I think it like explicitly places Clarice in a parallel to Percy. Uh huh. Because we like we saw in the last book. The uh, Gabe was also like a physically abusive father figure, but from the looks of things, it doesn't look like Clarice has like a Sally in her life. Like she doesn't have any support coming from a different parental figure. It doesn't seem like it now. So it's almost a kind of there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of thing for Percy. It makes us like a lot easier to relate to, I think. And it like removes her from being the one-dimensional bully character, like pretty firmly. Yeah, especially because we get that Percy moment where he's like, I think this is something that has happened to a lot of people. Like, you go to over to a friend's house and you see something really uncomfortable or, like, mm-hmm. something that... And you just kind of, like, ignore it and walk away because that is what the kids will do when they are faced with, like, a parents being abusive or something to their kids. Yeah. Especially because Percy relates to that, kind of. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, like, if you wanted to lean into that quite a lot, the idea that, like, Ares is literally a god, like, hammers home the idea that Percy can't do anything about this. Yeah. And plus with, like, Ares being a god and, like, her having this mysterious prophecy that's looming over her head, that's another really big, like, parallel to Percy because she is also, like, being pulled pulled by the nose via, like, prophecies and, like, gods and everything like that. Yeah. Speaking of characters who are set in parallel to Percy, uh-huh. what did you think of the Talia stuff? The Thalia stuff? Uh, I assume this is all just like set up for later developments. 
Like as as a standalone thing, I don't think it has a lot going for it. But like, I I assume it looks like it could go somewhere interesting. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was kind of interesting. We got because the whole okay, the whole I like the whole scene of like them discovering the old camp that the three of them made. That is pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, it gives us some more insight into like what their journey was like, and it's become pretty clear by now that I think this is going to be like a th- a thread throughout the novel. Yeah, exploring and, like Annabeth and Luke's past together. Yeah, um, like that includes like like Luke mentions in uh, the chapter eight that there is or chapter nine. Yeah, chapter nine. I keep saying chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Luke mentions in chapter nine that there is like some history that annabeth has with cyclopes and like it's interesting which is interesting first of all regarding her behavior mm-hmm. but is also like probably it seems like that it's explicitly confirmed that that has something to do with the journey on that they had on the way there yeah my my prediction at this point is the cyclops killed talia i wonder i think that because she explicitly says like cyclops can't be trusted like Mm -hmm. it makes me wonder like did they like get tricked by a cyclops or something that's kind of how it's looking which given given what like the the way that the one cyclops character has been coded so far is not i'm not i'm i'm worried about where that may end up Mm, yeah true i i okay so we get kind of a cap to what Car- what Tyson's character has been like so far with the last uh, chapter that we read, mm-hmm. because he gets his like big heroic moment. What did you think of that? Uh, I actually I really like the stuff that Tyson gets to do in these chapters. I agree. It, it feels like he has a lot more agency. He's not just like basically a piece of luggage that Percy has to protect from getting slurs yelled at him. Yeah, he he's gone from like that to like being a- an actual character most of all. I think okay. Mm-hmm. We get a really suspenseful and harrowing ending because like maybe Tyson hasn't been the be- best of characters so far, but he's like one consistent thing is that him and Percy have been sticking up for each other the whole book, mostly. Yeah. And as like a story of like an older brother trying to learn how to exist around like a new younger brother, it's pretty by the book, mm-hmm. but still effective because like you really understand Percy's desire to like save Tyson, just like Tyson saved him. And I don't know, Tyson's starting to feel like more of a fleshed out character, I guess. He's he's leaning into like the younger brother stuff, and that kind of works. There's a, a really good moment that I think sets that idea up quite well, which uh-huh. is where. Luke, like, offhandedly calls Percy a fool, and Tyson, like, leaps to his defense and says that he's not a fool, in pretty much the exact same way that Percy's been defending him for the entire book. Yeah. It it makes the relationship feel a lot less one-sided and more like, okay, these are two people who actually care about each other. Yeah, I think that's really, it's a, it's effective payoff. Um, it's really good. It's not really good. It's getting better, though. The Tyson stuff is definitely getting better. I'm glad because we we were really put off at the beginning. I think that going back to the camp stuff or not the camps, going back to like the little hidey hole that they set up. Mm-hmm. It's it's obviously like an important scene because Thalia in this book is kind of like a I don't know, would you call her like would you call her like a damsel in distress? 
Uh, I'm not sure I'd go that far, to be honest. Like, it's just a tree that used to be... I think she's, like, pretty firmly dead. And it's just a tree that exists where she was that's in distress. I kind of don't agree. I think that, like... Okay. I think that, like, a lot of this journey feels like a trip to... Like, Annabeth isn't just going to save a tree. She's, like... It feels like she's trying to save her dying friend who is with Mm -hmm. her at, like, the hardest points of her life. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like that exemplifies a lot of, like... Like, we kind of talked before about how, like, Thalia's tree dying felt like a lot of grief from Camp Half-Blood happening. Like, like so I think it is, to me, it kind of feels more like that than just, like, like some kind of memorial tree that they're protecting. Mm -hmm. And Percy is, like, jealous of Annabeth, which is an interesting reaction. How so? What, what, What makes you say that? I guess it's weird to say that it's interesting that he has a normal kid reaction. But he's basically saying, like, he okay, Percy doesn't have a lot of friends. Percy has, like, three friends. Mm -hmm. And he used to have four friends, kind of, but then one of his friends tried to kill him. Yeah. And he's he's hearing, like, one of his only friends talking about, like, this very intense traumatic shared experience that she had with other people and not Percy. And he reacts with it by having jealousy. I think a lot of times kids like will react that way. Like you've had life experiences outside of me knowing you. What the heck? Why didn't you invite me? That kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. I guess like my main worry with that stuff is just jealousy in a lot of kids media is like portrayed in such a like tiresome and repetitive way that I'm really Uh hoping that it doesn't just manifest in like Percy being shitty to Annabeth and not and refusing to explain why at some point. I'm going to say that I don't think that will happen. Nothing's indicated that, but I'm worried about it. (laughs) Understandable. Like you said, nothing's indicated it. Like, we didn't get that in the chapter afterwards that he said he was jealous. We didn't get it in the... We didn't get it in the chapter after that either. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's probably going to be something that is, like, portrayed well. But, I don't know. I guess we we, we have to wait and see. Oh, uh... Also, uh, on this page, I noticed what I think might be our first instance of something being localized in this book so far. Oh? Which is, if you uh, go up a little to when they're just, like, getting to the little campsite, in my copy it says, all I saw was a patch of brambles. Then Annabeth moved aside a woven circle of branches, blah, 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 blah. Does it still say brambles in your version? my loan was my loan went up i don't have the copy right now (laughs) damn i i put a hold on it so it should be back for the next episode but i don't have it right now i tell them you have a podcast why wouldn't it have the word brambles is brambles not like a british thing no what are you talking about well because it's like there's like a really weird regional divide in britain where like if you're from Scotland, you call them brambles, and if you're from England, you call them blackberries. Oh, I maybe I I don't you I I don't I've never heard of that at all. I usually I just hear like brambles as like a really generic like there's a bush of thing. I, oh, okay. And like like yeah, I think of like Sleeping Beauty or whatever, where they like. 
there's like trees and brambles and thorns. Like I just think of it as like a pointy bush kind of. Oh no, I mean, I guess that would make more sense in the context here anyway, because brambles are very specifically like a type of berry here. Okay, that's that's interesting. Okay, are they good? Yeah, you can just like pick them straight off the bush in like September and eat them. Aw, that sounds tasty. It is. So that that could have been localized, but I have no way of checking. Hmm. Well, either way, we've we've discovered interesting things about the word bramble. Very true. What do you think of Monster Donut? I would love to have a Monster Donut right now. Uh, yeah. I, really hilarious, honestly. Like. Hydras are like bread to be used to farm out their life force for the creation of more fast food chains. That's batshit. <laughs> Wait, that's oh, that's not how I read it at all. But that's a much better way of looking at it. How did you think it was? I literally just read it as like these things are the physical manifestations of hydras because they just keep multiplying. Ah, uh, I. I think it was kind of implied that, like, the hydras are being bred or something like that. Yeah, I think it says at some point that they're, like, a nest. Uh-huh. And that's that's really good. Um, this was a much cooler hydra battle than the one in the movie. God, yeah. The, the absolute coward Chris Columbus refused to give the hydra a bib around each neck that says, I'm a monster donut kid. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's... So good. I I love how funny like fights are in Percy Jackson. Mm-hmm. There's rarely ever a fight that's like completely played seriously. Like the Ares one, it is uh, the Minotaur one, I guess. But by and large, they tend to be like have a lot of humor in them. Yeah, I I don't know if you agree with this, but I think like the like quality of the action bits is a little bit lower in this book than it was in The Lightning Thief. But in in this fight especially, like, the humor absolutely carries it. I feel like we haven't had a lot of, like, action so far, though. So I, I kind of, like, I, like I, I basically agree. But I feel like we also don't have as much to judge. I think, like, the volleyball battle, the chariot stuff, and now this. I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, but they feel a lot less, like, vivid and visceral. The volleyball battle? Dodgeball, sorry. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I was, I thought you were trying to talk about the bulls or whatever. And I was like, they did not play volleyball in the, uh, with the bulls. Oh, I completely forgot about the bulls. Hey, that's that's not great. Yeah. Uh, I, I I basically agree with you. I think it's interesting. Uh, I I did like the uh, the action scene of them trying to like sail between Scylla and Charybdis. That was, yeah, I think that's the exception to this, just because it's, like, a different, an entirely different kind of action scene for this series. Because up until now, it's basically just been small children running around the monster trying to kill it. We've never gotten, like, a warship charging at a giant sea monster, firing all of its cannons at it. That's that's very cool. Yeah, it's it's unique for the series so far. I I hope we get more stuff like it because it's mm-hmm. it's more of the like you have to think cleverly and think up a solution, but it's also like a really big like actually why didn't they just go by why didn't they just go through Skilla? Uh I think Clarice mentions that like if they're all just below decks, she'll just like grab the entire boat and drag it out of the water. Yeah, she can't get an easy kill. 
put the Confederates up there. I guess maybe the worry then is that they wouldn't have enough to, like, crew the ship. Huh. Because, like, you need people I... to do engine things and gun things, I assume. I don't run a warship. Jane, you should look more into warship uh, realities. I I think they should have just let the Confederates... I mean, I guess the Confederates probably did die again. Most of them either but... explode or get eaten anyway, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was probably... It might have been the scariest encounter yet. Yeah, it's like... Charibidus, or however you pronounce it, is kind of like... A straight-up Eldritch Terror. So, so is Scylla, like, or Scylla? Uh, it's either Scylla or Scylla. I'm gonna say Scylla. Okay. It's, like, very... Oh, there's some mysterious thing. You won't see it until it gets you, and it's up high, and it'll grab you right out of the air. It's really good. So I did enjoy this one. Yeah. I think also what you were saying about, like, oh, you have to be clever and find a solution to the fight. I think this this is a really good demo- this fight is a really good demonstration of why you need to do that. Because Clarice very definitely does not do that. Her plan is sail forward, shoot gun, and it goes horribly. Her plan is to shoot Carabdus until it dies. <laughs> for a giant sea monster that just doesn't work. With nineteenth century cannon. Yeah. Oh, Oh, God. There's one thing we haven't talked about yet uh-huh. that I think is essential to speak on. Okay. We need to talk about the centaurs. We do. I love the centaurs. We we only get a hint of it so far, I think. But when they try to iris message Chiron, he is like at a centaur rave. <laughs> I want to go like, okay. It's been a couple episodes since we've said anything like this. But this is so much better than Harry Potter. <laughs> you thought we'd escaped, but we're back. Like like Cherimidus, we have been sucked back into the hall of talking about Harry Potter. Oh, we've been spit out. We, would it be scary to be in a whirlpool if you were just like a person? Yes. Are you sure? Because like I feel like it's scary if you're on a boat because you'll like get sucked in with all the pieces and you like won't be able to like like you'll get hurt but i feel like if you're just getting sucked into a whirlpool as a person that's like no problem you'll swim back up right you'll get forced into the water and drown you swim swim in a different direction Uh, harder than the whirlpool is pulling you in well you get pulled down under the whirlpool don't you yeah but if you think that you can swim harder than a whirlpool can pull you in i would be interested to watch that play out no, but like if you, you like if you get pulled under the whirlpool, then you uh-huh. are under the whirlpool, so you're no longer in the whirlpool, which means that like you don't you're not being affected by the whirlpool anymore, so you can just swim to the side and like then swim up. I don't think mythological creatures like Cherubidus, which like represent whirlpools, would exist if they weren't terrifying and like killed a lot of people. I and weren't like trivial to get away from. <laughs> Yeah, but I think that must be from boats, right? I think it's the boats that are the problem. How often do you get out into the middle of the ocean without a boat, though? I don't know, sometimes. I'm saying I think it must be an effective <laughs> solution. If you see a whirlpool that's going to suck your ship in, just jump off the side. Just jump out, wait for the whirlpool to disperse, and then drown in the normal water. No, just swim to the shore. <laughs> 
It's so Jacqueline, easy. Jacqueline, you should also you should also look more into warship realities to learn more about boats. I don't think you know anything about swimming or water. I think, <laughs> I, I think I'm a genius. And no, but okay, the centaurs, <laughs> the centaurs in Harry Potter are like boring, weird, racist stereotypes. Probably rapists. Probably and like. Uh, that's so boring. Who cares? But mm-hmm. in Harry, in, oh, in Harry Potter, in Percy Jackson, we get these fun-loving jerks who are, like, constantly partying. And, like, Chiron, the snooty old guy, is, like, so annoyed by them. And that's great. The centaurs really, like, from what little we get them here, come across as total dirtbags, and I love it. This is what the dirtbag left is. <laughs> that's why Chiron hates them so much. <laughs> Oh, I peaked really bad on that one. I have to turn my, my microphone volume down. One second. <laughs> that should be better. Actually, it's too quiet. That should be better. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah, I th- oh, God. The Chiron is a like a hard right winger thing. is never not going to be funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's not true, but it feels so true in my heart. It's, it's not the intention, but it's not awful that it kind of reads that way. Uh, I'd like to um, briefly uh, justify about half an hour of my life that I wasted uh-huh. uh, suffering. Go on. Okay, so Percy mentions that the Princess Andromeda travels 530 nautical miles in one night. And so I thought, haha, wouldn't it be funny if I calculated like the G-force that would be necessary, that would be like exerted on the passengers if that happened. Oh god. And it'll probably come out with some number that shows that they all got turned into jam. Oh god, Jane. <laughs> it's okay. I never I never reached to any number like that. Because I I forgot that the physics education that I received was completely useless and only taught me how to calculate um like velocity and acceleration in a vacuum. Uh-huh. So I got as far as figuring out that the Okay, so the average weight of a cruise ship is about uh-huh. 40,000 tons. Right. And to travel uh, the speed that... To travel the distance that the Princess Andromeda did, I reckon it would take about four hours. Well, I reckon it was traveling for around four hours. Because they leave right. pretty late at night, and then it's summer, so it would get bright pretty early as well. So okay. from that, I calculated that they would be traveling around 135 miles an hour, or 60.35 meters per second. Okay. I then spent, like I said, around half an hour of my life, which I only get one of, trying to figure out how I could calculate the acceleration and therefore get the force exerted on them from that. Right. Um, but as it turns out, a boat in water is not a vacuum. Yes, that's very true. Uh, and if I don't have any of the like physical specifications for the Princess Andromeda, I can't work out like the drag on it from the air and the water. And I don't know how deep it would sit in the water, so I don't know uh, how much that would be affected by it. Uh... Jane. <laughs> Jane. Hello. You told me you were going to justify this. Uh, I'm justifying it um, to myself by making you all suffer through the sped-up process of me banging my head against a wall of trying to look clever by using a subject that I got a D in. 
A level. Oh, I never took physics, so I don't have to worry about that. Oh, God. It's a bad subject. Hey, wait, hang on. What the fuck is with the bear people? The bear? Oh, oh, I want to talk about this. Yeah, same. It's so messed up that we can keep... That Rick can just put any little myth he wants in his kids' books, including the story of Polyfonte about a woman who tried to get away from, like, an Aphrodite-approved marriage, and so she went to join Artemis, but then Aphrodite was like, I'm gonna curse you, so now you have to fuck a bear, and that's not okay, first of all, (laughs) but... And she, that's, okay, first of all, that's, that's another extremely messed up myth, you know, that, that's just par for the course, but getting, like, the, like, kids version of it, of, like, she was enchanted by Aphrodite to fall in love with a bear or whatever, and then we had these kids. I mean, this is, this is, like, the PG-13 version of this, but the story is basically unchanged, right? Yeah. Which strikes me as really weird, because Rick was willing to completely change Medusa's backstory. Yeah. Like, why leave this one intact? You could change it. You could change it, Rick. Nobody would judge you. Another thing. Here's what happened, as far as I know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Zeus hated her. Or didn't hate her, but hated, like, her kids because they sucked so bad. He hated Agrius Nereus. I mean, they do seem to suck quite a lot. Yeah, apparently they just, like, were cannibals who attacked people. On the- yeah, and Zeus hated them and was like, Hermes, go punishment, whatever. And then Ares, who was their great-great-grandfather, basically was like, instead of killing them, turn them into birds, and they all turn into owls. What the fuck? And- hey, this also ties into, like, uh, Luke continues to just be, like, correct about the Olympians. A little bit, yeah. No, nobody comes out well in this story. No, Luke is very correct. This is this is a world that needs to be torn down. It's true. I'm. That is one of the main things that's like bugging me so far. Is that we we've joked before about like Luke basically just being like the equalist from Legend of Korra or like Bane from the Batman uh, Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. But like, it really is just like. Luke makes a completely justified criticism of the status quo. Percy says, nah, you're a lunatic. And then Luke, like, kicks a dog. Yeah, okay, and let's be clear. There are a million people in this world who will give valid criticisms of, like, capitalism and the way that the world works and then use that to, like, try and argue for a worse world. They'll use it to say that um, Rai the Last Dragon is a ripoff of Avatar the Last Airbender. Christ. Um, <laughs> but <sighs> we're going to get cancelled by, El- by Lindsay Ellis stands now. <laughs> then we'll have to release an- a movie length video about how <laughs> Okay. It's okay. Uh, we've already released one solemn JPEG. We've got, like, we've got the process down. We can do another one. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, yeah. Did I show you someone made like a cyberpunk edit of that? Really? I uh, show me after the podcast. I will. But okay, Christ, what were we saying? Um, uh, the gods suck. The god, the gods suck. I do think that Luke. I don't think that this is an another instance of like what's that guy in Black Panther like Kilgrave? Uh, Killmonger. Killmonger. 
There are so many Marvel villains who just have the word kill in their name. There's kill Yeah, he's, War, a, he's the child of Ironmonger and Killgrave because they can't come up with new names. Yeah. I know this is comics or whatever, but whatever. Who cares? Uh, exactly. Killmonger, I, this isn't the case where it's like he has a lot of valid points. And then he, you know, they give him one really bad point to, mm-hmm. like, make him the big villain. This isn't that case. This is definitely a case of, like, Luke is baby fascist. Not a baby. He's, like, 18. He's he's normal fascist who yeah. is, like, make, he was, like, levying those criticisms to try and, like, get his own personal gain. But... It, it, it rings the same way, so I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like, again, I don't... I'm not expecting Percy Jackson, 12-year-old fictional child, to just, like, say politics I think are correct. I would just, like, like there to be a, maybe just, like, a little more conflict than just them calling him a crazy idiot. Just because... Yeah. Beyond anything else, that would just be made for more interesting scenes. Like, even if, even if they were just saying, like dumb liberal garbage that I don't agree with. It would just give give it a little more texture. This is kind of like Hades. Uh-huh. Speaking of bringing back things that we talk about a lot, uh, this is kind of like Hades because that's... Um, I would say, like, it plays with two different ideas. The idea that the underworld is capitalism and the idea that, like, like family or whatever, you know what I mean? This is kind of similar insofar as it's presenting itself as a story where, like, the Olympians are, like, family. And, like, you have a bad relationship with your family or you have a good one, you know, complicated relationships with family. Mm -hmm. But it's also presenting this theme of, like, the Olympians kind of, like, run the world. Badly. Badly. But we don't engage with that as much. Yeah. So it's kind of... And, like, I don't... I think it's complicated, but I hope that they do engage with that more because I like the Olympians as like your weird family stuff, but I also want it to be like actually grappled with the idea that like there is like stuff happening that is like systemic with the Olympians. Yeah, because I mean, like even in these chapters, we see that like the book's not completely afraid to go there. Like the the monster donuts thing, as stupid as it is, and as much as it's played for a joke is like at its core saying hey these things are evil they kind of fucked up uh-huh. yeah and that's so I, th- I think there's room for that i think so let's wrap it up let's do a, a famous segment all right my okay this is an obvious one for me clarice uh-huh. is six six she is trans absolutely there is no argument she is a queen trans icon <laughs> we need more trans bullies please uh what about you for our Uh, our little funny little segment mine is like all of chiron's extended family because they are absolutely in like a gay bar in miami or something and just having a ball oh god you're right i love it oh shit oh shit Uh i almost forgot to mention something that i kept like I've written it like five separate places in my notes saying mention this at the start of the episode to sound smart. This is why you need to write down notes on an actual page instead (laughs) of writing it down in disparate pages across a book. Listen, perhaps. Uh, But I I learned an interesting fact about the name of Luke's sword. 
backbiter. Mm-hmm. Which is that uh, in Norse mythology, uh, one of Loki's alternate names is backbiter. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is interesting. Which I think is just that's. I assume that's intentional. Almost certainly. We we arguably we talked about there being like subtle references to Norse mythology and Percy Jackson already, mm-hmm. but yeah. And I think it also it retroactively makes that really great scene of uh, Luke leading Percy into the forest even better, because like giving him a sword named after a trickster god is pretty good foreshadowing that he's about to do a betrayal. Very true. It's such an evil sword. <laughs> it's it's a very evil, very cool sword, and I can't wait to see it actually get used in a fight. I I really do. T- I I I if if I could like get like a replica backbiter of my own, I would be living life. Uh, find us you. on Patreon. <laughs> okay, I think that actually is everything. Yeah. Speaking of Patreon, that wraps it up. Uh, thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach the show, you can find you can drop us an email at unwisegirlspod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at unwisegirls, where we also have a link to our official Discord server. If you'd like to support us, you can by downloading our episodes, leaving a nice rating and review, and maybe checking out our Patreon at uh, patreon.com slash unwisegirls. For $1 a month, you get a special role in our Discord server, marking you as a camp counselor. For $3 a month, you get an even specialer role as a friend of Dionysus and access to all of our bonus content. This week, we talked about uh, the bye-bye man. Don't think it, don't say it. Don't think it, don't say it. And Homestuck. Uh, And (laughs) if you're feeling especially generous... For $5, you get the special stroll of uh, Aphrodite's Chosen, all the bonus content, and a thank you at the end of our episodes. Uh, speaking of which, uh, this week we'd like to thank Mercy, Veronica, Friend, and Medusa, Daddy Poseidon's ex. Ah, thank you, everyone. We really appreciate you. We do. Uh, and as we always say, at the end, of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. See you next week, Camp Half Blood. Bye bye.